Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17. And we want to teach on reaching the undiscipled. Reaching the undiscipled. Undiscipled people are folks who have not come up under the yoke of the gospel. And because of that, they uh, live an undisciplined life. Now, turn me down just a little bit. I'm getting just a slight echo there. Okay, 2 Kings 17. Let's look at verse 24. And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Cutha and from Ava and from Hamath and from Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel, and they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they didn't fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them which slew some of them. Wherefore they spake to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations which... You have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria, know not the manner of the God of the land. Therefore he hath sent lions among them, and behold, they slay them, because they know not the manner of the God. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Carry thither one of the priests whom ye brought from there, and let them go and dwell there, and let them teach them the manner of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Howbeit, every nation made gods of their own and put them in the houses of the high places, which the Samaritans had made. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, it's a privilege to fellowship with the saints and to be able to look into the scripture Help us as we look into this lesson tonight. We're so glad your son came and died for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so reaching the undiscipled. This is an interesting little background because if you recall, Jacob purchased some land from some Hittites. And he gave that property to his children, uh, particularly an area of land he gave to Joseph. And then in Joshua 24, verse 32, it tells how this area of Samaria was given as an inheritance to the children of Joseph. Because of Israel's sins, you understand that God drove them out of the promised land. Now, the covenant was this. If you obey me, you get to dwell in the land. If you do not obey me, you'll be driven forth or captured and taken out. And so that's exactly what happened. The king of Assyria came and brought them out. But as you can see, he repopulated the area with people from all around the Mesopotamian region. And when they came, they didn't know, they didn't know God at all. And the scripture says, God sent lions and they attacked the people. So little by little, folks were dying 
under the judgment of God. Now, you might say, well, why was this happening? Let's remember, this was the promised land. This was the inheritance of Abraham and his seed. But now a king has come and placed heathen people on there. They're worshiping their own God. And at this point, they realized, because they're very superstitious, if we don't learn about the God here, we're going to be in trouble. And so they sent a priest, and he tried to teach them, and the priest did the best that he could. The only way you're going to try to change people's behavior, you've got to change their mind. But if you can't get the word of God down in their heart, you can't change their behavior. Because they could not change the behavior of the people, it says they listened to the priests, and they still made their other gods. Now, I liken this to a preacher who's called to a church, and that church is filled with unbelievers, and then he has to stand there and try to tell these people about God, and they're not interested in listening. Because they have their own religion, they have their own mentality. You're trying to say there's one way to heaven, there's one God to serve, there's one way to serve him, and they're saying to you, well, you don't understand where we come from, there are gods of trees and gods of rocks and gods of different cities. And the priest is doing his best to let them know we have one path, one righteous way. And so these are the people who ended up populating the area, and I'm sure they had a lot of descendants. Now let's go to John chapter 4 now. The Gospel of John chapter 4. That's just the background. So here... Here we have where it says that in verse 1 of John chapter 4, Jesus has his disciples with him. And notice it says that he was baptizing folks. And in verse 2, he only baptized his disciples. Now, the English is ambiguous there because you can't really tell from how it's written if it's Jesus doing the baptizing or if it's the disciples. But the Greek is a lot more specific. Jesus was baptizing people, but he only baptized his own disciples. You say, why is baptism important? Because it is the outward manifestation of an inward belief. And when a person goes down in the water and comes up, they're signifying that they identify with Jesus Christ as their Savior. And that is why on the day of Pentecost... The first message for the people who repented, they were told, be baptized. This is why when Philip was witnessing to the Ethiopian eunuch and the man asked the question, what hinders me from being baptized? He said, nothing. Here's some water right here. So in the scripture, you do not find where people have to go through 16 weeks of classes in order to be baptized. You do not find where you have to go through eight weeks of studies to learn what the water is about, whether if it needs to be cool or warm or lukewarm. No, the day they get them saved, they ought to get them in the water. And as they're stepping out of the baptismal, put a tithe and offering envelope in their hand. That's what they ought to do. There's no sense in waiting for people to go through 16 weeks of classes and backslide because they don't like what they're hearing if they're already turned on to God. Let people go on with God, see? 
And so this is what was happening with the disciples of, of the Lord Jesus. So the Lord, he left that area. In verse 4, he went back up into Galilee, but he wanted to pass through Samaria in order to go there. Now, we told you about the background of Samaria. It was repopulated. And the Samaritan people were different than traditional Jews because the Jewish people accepted Genesis through Malachi as the word of God. The Samaritan people then, and the 140 of them that are still in Israel right now, they only believe in the first five books of Moses. So Samaritans today who live in Israel, up on Mount Nablus, they do not accept Isaiah as a canonical book. They do not accept the Psalms as inspired books. Just Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It is to these people that Jesus feels that he now needs to go and speak to. So in verse 5, he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. So here is a well that has been in continual operation for 1,700 years. For 1,700 years, people have been bringing cattle, and ladies have been coming with their buckets. Now, for us, it's, it's difficult for us to even imagine something like this. Uh, we know that a lot of people out here have whales on their property, because a lot of them use them for whatever today, you know. But, but the, the bottom line is, none of us today have to walk a mile and a half to get to a whale. I think we, we showed you some pictures when we came back from that last trip to East Africa, and we were telling you about the, the kids and the ladies who sometimes have to walk a day to a well to fill up buckets, to walk back, and then they have all kinds of uh, sticks and knives that they have to take because as they're walking, they've got to deal with Wild animals that are out there, hyenas and lions. So the, the whale was basically the intersection of all the different tribes. And for this particular area, that's what Jacob's well was. It continually supplied water to hundreds, if not thousands of people in the region. And they came there because they knew the water was there. That's, that, that's a life, life-saving uh, life-saving commodity there. So verse, verse 6 then, Jesus being tired, he sat on the well. So here we can see the humanity of the Lord. Even though he was God in the flesh, we know the scripture teaches that he slept, he became angry. We know, he, we know that he laughed because Luke chapter 10 says that he rejoiced. So we know he could be happy. But here you can see that he was weary. Now, if you've ever been on a long journey and, and made a long trip, you know that uh, being, being tired is not a, not a good thing. But you also know that if you're going to be tired and rest, a good place to do it would be by a well. Don't you think so? Yeah. Anybody here ever had water out of a well? 
Other than me, am I the only farm kid out here? Okay, a few, few other. Okay, so if you have water out of a well, then you know that that's some good cold, cold water. And, and that, uh, <clears throat> that'll definitely refresh you. I think there's a little verse in the Old Testament that says that good news from a far country is just like cold water, you know, comes and refreshes the soul. So he sat there, and it's about the sixth hour, that's noontime, <clears throat> and here comes a woman, and she's coming to draw water. Now, just to give a little information about her background, you can see in verse 18, this woman has had five husbands. Now, why she's the one bringing, coming out here to draw water, the scripture doesn't tell us. And we don't know if she's a descendant of the Samaritans or if she is actually of the children of Jacob who's dwelling here. We know that she claims Jacob as her father. He says that, she says that later on. But here's what I'm getting at, though. <clears throat> This lady had a pretty broken life, you know, five husbands, and she had pretty much given up on marriage and now was living with a gentleman. And Jesus says to this kind of a woman, give me something to drink. Now, we're talking about reaching the undisciple. And if you're going to reach people, one of the things you have to do is engage them in conversation. See? If if you don't do that, how are you going to share the good news? The other thing that has to happen is sometimes you have to go to where sinners are. Yeah. You, you can't expect them to come to where you are. So we don't, we don't expect people who don't love God to come to a church. You know, for the most part, sinners aren't interested in church. And for you who can remember what your life was like before you ever really became a Christian. I mean, how many times did you sit around with your friends, you know, and you guys were doing whatever you were doing, and then somebody said, let's have a prayer meeting? I mean, sinners don't do that. You know, they don't say, you know, why don't we get down on our knees and talk to God, or let's pull a Bible out and read. They, they didn't do that. No, we didn't do that. And folks in my family didn't do that. So the, the, the key then in in, in dealing with folks that do not know the Lord is, I've got to get in contact with them because I have to initiate contact with some of them. I can't expect them to always initiate contact with me. And I have to ask the kind of question or make the kind of statement that could provoke a conversation. Yeah. Now, what, what that is, you know, God have to give you the wisdom. And knowing how to do that and what to say. But, but I have found that you should take advantage of, <clears throat> take advantage of the obvious things. You know, somebody say to you, what did you do over the weekend? Then you tell them what you did over the weekend. Then you mention, I went to church. See? So, so now you've made that statement and you can tell by their expression whether or not they possibly want to ask further questions or whether you can move on in the discussion. Because somewhere along the line, somebody has to initiate the discussion. Because people who don't know God, they very often have thought about God, may even be thinking about the king, but they don't know who to talk to. 
this woman has had five husbands and, and was living with a gentleman that uh, was not her hubby. She was, she was religious. She, she knew the mountain was the place where you were supposed to worship God. She just doesn't seem like the kind of person that was doing that. And I've met a lot of people who were raised in church, raised around church, know a few stories about the Bible, but are not themselves people who follow God out of a pure heart. Yeah. So Jesus says to her in verse 7, give me something to drink. Now, his disciples, fortunately for this story, they had gone away to buy meat because you know how Christians, Christians like to eat. You know, Christians, they, they like food and they like fellowship and they like fun. And I, I know that's the truth because it's the same way with me as a, as a preacher. I'm telling you right now, I've, I put a lot of chickens in the ministry and they, they, they've made it to a lot of tables uh, because I came around visiting people because I, I do, I like to eat and I like to, like to fellowship. So uh, they were off at the market, but I, what I do find impressive about this, uh, Mr. Ireland, is that the, these men knew how to shop. What? You're a little too excited back there. Yes, Mr. Darren Neff, these, these men knew how to shop. They knew where to go. They knew what to purchase, and that's exactly what they were doing. So, so verse number nine, then, the lady says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me, who's a woman of Samaria, and the Jews don't have no dealings with us? So there's this issue of bias and prejudice. We're Jewish, you're Samaritan, we have our religion, you have yours, even though we have the same books. We don't engage one another. Now, Christians accept the Old Testament. Jewish people, of course, have the Old Testament. We accept the New Testament. Muslims claim the Old Testament to be true, and they say the New Testament is one of the books of their people. And they say it prophesies about Muhammad coming, even though that's entirely bogus. And so they have their Koran. But Orthodox Jewish people, the, the ones with the long curls and wear the black, you'll see them occasionally walking uh, the streets of different uh, cities out here. <coughs> they, don't, they don't get involved with non-Jewish people and folks outside of their community. They don't invite you into their homes. In Cleveland, Ohio, where I grew up, we had a whole section of Cleveland that was all Orthodox Jewish people. They had their own stores, their own barbers. No one goes into those areas but them, and their kids don't come out of that area ever, unless they're going to get on a plane or something like that or go and have to travel to go visit someone. Because the idea is to conserve what you have, you've got to stay where you are to keep from defiling yourself with the people who do not have a covenant with God. You see how that works? 
The only problem with that is the only way you can multiply and grow is through reproduction because there's not a whole lot of outreach. So as a Christian then, when I lived in the Middle East, if, if we were invited to a Muslim home, which was very rare, oftentimes whatever cups and plates you ate from, they broke them when you left. And you can hear them breaking as you were leaving going out the door. And the reason for that is because the belief was Christians were unclean. And you wouldn't think that people on planet Earth hold to views and values like that. But if you look again here at verse number, verse number 9, you can see why she was so startled that he, being a Jewish man, obviously dressed like a Jewish man, would engage a woman who was Samaritan. Now, in, the, in the, the, the Middle East, whenever I take Tiffany over there, the one thing guys don't do is engage a lady in conversation who's outside of his family. It's, it's prohibited. It's a taboo. So, so generally, when we, Turkey, Egypt, wherever, if, if you see a guy walking, then the lady is normally walking behind her, and if gentlemen approach, then the lady looks down at the ground, and she never looks up in a man's face because that's, a, that's a, a, an act of dishonor to look in a man's face. So they constantly look down. And the last thing you ever do would, would, ask, would be to ask a man, how's his wife doing? How's, how are your daughters? You know, what are you, why are you asking about my daughters? You, you interested in them or something like that? So it was, it was a very submissive culture. For the ladies, they walked behind the guys, and the guys had the power, you know. I always did like that culture. But, but regardless, the, the thing is, this lady is startled. This Jewish man is talking with her. But again, we're talking about outreach. How are you going to reach people if you don't talk to them, even if they're different from you and of a different culture? Yeah. I, I am so grateful that somebody uh, took the time to lead me to the Lord when I was little. And then I think about the, the numbers of people through the ministry that we brought to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether it's witnessing to somebody out on the street, See, that, that takes a whole lot of wisdom and tact. If, if you're an introvert and you don't like to engage people in conversation, it's still good to get out of your comfort zone and have to talk to somebody about the Lord publicly. Yeah, just standing in a grocery store uh, aisle or something, and then somebody asks you about a product, and then you just happen to say something like, you know, I'm, I'm just curious. Do you know if there's a good church around here somewhere? Or do you know anybody that really loved the Lord? You know, yeah. When, when we street witness, sometimes when I was younger, you know, we'd just go knock on the door and just, just say something like, you know, we were just running, wondering if there's anybody around here that's needing prayer in this house. Or, or is there anyone in this house that loves Jesus? We'd like to talk with them. Anything to get a conversation going. That's aside from 
the, the, the standing out on the street corners and telling everybody they're going to hell if they don't know Christ. I did that too. Yeah. Right out in, 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 in the public forum. But I have found that for everyday evangelism and witness, you have to do the whole Operation Andrew thing. Andrew goes and gets his brother, and he brings him back. See, you, if each one reaches one, that's somebody else that'll come to know the king. But at least, even if you don't feel like you know the story that well, you can at least tell the story of what Jesus means to you. You may not know a lot of scripture, may not have a lot of scripture memorized, but you can at least share why Jesus is important to you. And by doing that, you, you, you'll get the attention of a lot of people. So here in, in, in verse number 10, Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's, that's speaking with you, saying, give you to drink, you would have asked of him. And he would have given you living water. So she's talking to God, doesn't even know she's talking to God. She doesn't even know living water exists, and she's just discovering it. So when you're witnessing to people, you oftentimes are telling them about things they don't know. They, they, they don't understand why, why you're so happy and jubilant in Christ. Everybody can't figure that out. They don't know why you always have a smile on your face or why it is you feel the need to be diligent in, in uh, your worship and attendance and fellowship. This lady had a routine that brought her to the well every day, but going to the well every day doesn't put you in contact with God. And every day across this nation, there are people who get up and drive or walk or ride a bicycle to work without ever really considering the fact that there's a God that's interested in their routine and in their path. Yeah. I, I don't doubt that all of us this evening when we drove here, we passed hundreds of people who don't know anything about God. And likely, if they had some physical contact with us, they'd be interested. Yeah. Because I know as a, as a pastor... <clears throat> Whenever I get to get in a situation with some farmer, some rancher, some hospital worker, or, or wherever they, the person may uh, work, and some that don't even work, just for them to have some private time with a preacher, they have questions. Because a whole lot of people don't know any preachers personally. And then if, if, if they can start saying things like, well, well why is it that you believe in God. I mean, with so much evil and stuff in the world. Well, you know, I don't have just one or two answers. I just, God helped me in the moment. But here's what I do know. Every person in this world essentially is a pilgrim. And I know every pilgrim needs a path. See? Every pilgrim needs a path. They need a light. I know that. And, and if they have a path and they have a light and they have a compass then they, they typically can kind of get to where they need to be. And so if I can explain to them that Jesus is my pathway and serving him and walking on that path is what has preserved me from the kinds of mistakes that other people have made, then it starts making sense. You know, uh, Growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, <clears throat> I had a, a number of friends that never made it to adulthood. 
They were on a different path than I was on. And when I watched one of my high school friends, a guy named Tipper, we were all at Dairy Queen one night, and he got into an a, uh, argument with a guy and tried to break up another fight, and the guy got mad because he broke the fight up and came back with a shotgun, shot him dead. There he was dead right at our feet. I watched him die. Never in my life have I ever heard anybody mention anything about him knowing God. We're on different paths. When one of my neighbors across the street got into it with somebody, and then <clears throat> the guy came back and tried to start a fight with him in his house, uh, the guy shot him in the house, and I watched as he staggered out the front porch and down on the front grass and died in the front yard with a row of hedges all around him on a different path, you see. People who do not have a relationship with God, don't have the knowledge and the instruction to make the decisions necessary to lead to righteousness. And you cannot expect people to just simply know because they have a grandmother or a cousin that goes to church. And even if they have neighbors they go to church and love God, it doesn't mean that what's in the neighbor's house is going to get into the house that's right next door. So the only way for it to get in there, there are little simple things people have to do. Somebody move onto the street and you don't know who they are, then you just make the decision, you know what, since we got a newbie coming to the street, we're going to give them six months to get saved or we're going to pray them out of here. He said, well, what are you going to do to try to get them saved? Bake them a cake. Take them over there and say, look, I'm one of your neighbors and want to welcome you to the neighborhood. Here's a nice little cake we made and we just want to introduce ourselves. Well, I mean, you know, typically people aren't that friendly these days as they might have been in years past, you know. I mean, it was a time when in Hebron and some of these other towns, everybody kind of knew everybody. But now you've got a whole lot of transplants. Yeah, got to watch them folks come up from Garden City and places like that, you know, a lot of transplants. And so when people come in, then the, you, you, you show love and manifest love because that's a form of outreach. And if you're dealing with people who are undiscipled, undisciplined in the things of God, then our fellowship can affect people and it can turn somebody's life around. Imagine, imagine, oh my goodness, what Brennan would be like if he didn't know God. I mean, he's trouble now. But I mean, if he, didn't, if, he, if he didn't know the Lord, I wouldn't even let Tiffany sit on the back row with him back there, you see? But a relationship with the king changes everything. So notice verse 11. She's like the woman, she's like Nicodemus. When Jesus said you need to be born again, Nicodemus couldn't understand what he's talking about. Verse 11, the woman said, you don't even have anything to draw water with, <coughs> and the well is deep. So she's thinking about natural water, he's talking about living water, and she doesn't even have a conception of what he's talking about because she doesn't live where he lives. Her mind isn't like his. He's consumed with the kingdom of God, and she's going through the drudgery of everyday life. Go home, look after this person, keep the house, got to make the meal, walk back to the well, 
come back, wash the clothes, clean the house, make the meal, look after whoever, come back. See, the drudgery of her existence, it, it didn't include God at all. He just, he wasn't a part of it. So verse, verse 11, that's where her mind is. And she says in verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? So she claims descendancy from Jacob and said his family and children got their water from here. That's 1,700 years prior to. That's a long time. See, 1,700 years. But Jesus said, if you drink this water, you'll be thirsty again, but I have something else to give. So that's what we have to offer. Something that can really quench somebody's thirst. This lady, again, five husbands. We don't know how many other relationships she had. So obviously in her, there's an emptiness. There's a hole, a void that needs to be filled. Christ has the answer to filling that. The the person who's got a drug habit that's a $300 a day habit or a $2,000 a month habit, whatever kind of habit it is, it controls them, it manipulates their actions, they cannot function uh, peacefully without fulfilling those particular appetites. But Jesus is the one who can give them what they need to quench that appetite, see, that thirst. And, and so many people have, have found that to be true. And so all over the world, the gospel is preached. And then whether somebody's sitting in a sanctuary or standing out in an open field, they hear the gospel and it changes them in less than 30 minutes. Imagine growing up in Russia or China and all of your life from toddler stage until adulthood you were told there was no God. But somewhere down in here, if we believe Romans 1, God has manifested himself. So that down in here, people know that there is a, is a God. And, and they've always wondered, and then maybe one day they're li- listening to a shortwave radio program. Or they're visiting with somebody, and there just happens to be a preacher on the television. Or somebody gives them a New Testament book. And they sit down and read that and it changes their life. There have been a lot of women in this world that have been been gloriously affected by the story of this woman right here. There's no, no doubt about it. This lady was broken, but she found somebody that could make her whole. And after he told her about the everlasting water or everlasting life, that that functions and flows like a fountain. Verse 15, she says, sir, give me this water. She had sense. Because a person who doesn't possess this, this is what they want. This is what they crave. This is what they desire. Even if they don't know it. That's why we have to tell them about it. So don't ever take for granted that somebody's a Christian just because they were raised in church. Some of the best Fields of evangelism are churches. My wife and I, we have seen multitudes of people come to Jesus in a revival service. 
preaching in a church with hundreds of people there. Standing in, in a, in a uh, I'm trying to think, the church one time, I was preaching out on the West Coast, and here was a preacher's kid, PK. So I was there for these meetings, and I, as I normally do when I'm the guest speaker, I'm at the back door shaking hands with all the people as they come in. You know, a lot of preachers don't do that. They just hide in the back room until it's time for them to come out on stage, then they perform, and then they just disappear with their bodyguards and stuff. Not me. I'm shaking hands, introducing themselves. Hey, I'm the camp evangelist. I'm Pastor Daryl Sutton. Just want to make sure I get to know you and shake your kids' hands. I'm doing all of that. So, of course, when I get up on the platform to start preaching, because I've introduced myself formally and physically, I've got the teenagers and the young people paying attention now. They're listening to the stories. So this one young man I said to him, are you going to be here all week in the services? He said, well, I don't have a choice. My dad is the pastor here. Oh. I said, all right. So I said, well, and he was, a, he was a, I think he was adopted. Foster kid, and they were getting ready to adopt him. And I said, well, if you're going to be here, uh, let me ask a question. Are you a Christian? No, I don't know too much about that, but they talk about it a lot. I said, well, if you're going to be here every night listening to me, I guarantee you before the end of this meeting, you're going to be in that altar and you're going to have your hands up and you're going to be crying out to God. He looked at me like, preacher, you've lost your mind. You don't know me. You don't know me at all. And then he turned and walked away. So sure enough, I, we started the, the meetings, and I was preaching night after night. And I mean, I was like a man with a shotgun hunting rabbits. I was just shooting at everything that moved. And I mean, the power of God was in there. Conviction was in there. And the spirit of the Lord was at work in that place. And night after night, I was watching all of these kids coming down into this altar. The pastor of the church hadn't seen a move of God like that in his church in so long. He just sat up there and wept as he was seeing this night after night. I would go and sit up in the loft with him as all of this was going on down there at the altar, and we would sit there and I'd talk to him, and I'd say, look, all your services can be like this. Just pray and fast and ask God to to, to move and, and to minister. Well, one night... God really got to moving in that place, and that altar was filled with people. And I was down front going by one by one, shaking hands and laying hands on people and praying and telling folks, go ahead, keep worshiping God and all of this. And sure enough, when I worked my way from this side down to this side, there's that preacher's kid. And he's down there on his knees with his dad next to him, praying for him. He had his hands up and tears running down his face as he was calling on the Lord. And, of course, I didn't stop and get down in front of him and say, I told you so. I just waited for him to get himself together. And then afterwards, I said, I told you so. (laughs) Yeah, I know how this works. You can't sit up under the word of God preached under the anointing and remain the same. I had a tent up one time where we were ministering, and there was a good friend of mine there. Her name was Tiffany, just like my wife's name. And so Tiffany decided one night up under that tent she's going to bring a friend of hers 
And so I was, again, at the door, shaking hands as people were coming in. She introduced me to her friend, and I said, well, how in the world did you end up coming out here with Tiffany? She said, well, Tiffany and I had a wager. I lost the wager, and I had to come out here to this camp meeting. I said, really? And Tiffany was smiling, had a big smile on her face. So I said to the, to the young lady, <coughs> I said, well, I said, how many nights do you have to come out? She said, I've got to come out all week. I said, well, I guarantee you in a few days you're going to be down there in the front of everybody in the altar crying out for the Lord to save you. She again gave me that look. You've lost your mind. I'm here because I lost a wager, not because I'm looking for God. Well, we, we ministered night after night, and uh, I, I still remember it vividly. Gave the altar call one night, and uh, a man uh, was sitting in the back, had tattoos all over his neck, all over his arms, everywhere where there was visible skin. And as I was praying and talking to people, I saw the little lady next to him, thought it was his little sister, and, and she was kind of elbowing him and nudging him, saying, Let's, you, you need to go down, you need to go down. And eventually, he came down, he had just got out of prison, I thought that was his little sister, that was his daughter, we led him to Christ there in that evening, and I'm telling you, that place just about exploded, you know, just with him giving his heart to the Lord. So we kept ministering night after night. One evening, I had called people down front again just to give their hearts to the Lord. And I said, if God's working on any of you and you just want to come down here and you deal with God and he deals with you, I won't even bother you. Just come on down here to the altar. And in all that sawdust under that tent, I watched as all these people came and knelt down and was talking to the king and working from one end to the other. Come all the way down here, and there's Tiffany's friend. And she's on her knees, and she's crying out, asking God to save her. And, of course, you know, people like that, we like to let them know we, we told you so. You know, so we like to get down there right close in their face so they know we're there. And let them know we're praying for them. But here's a lady came in that meeting. Didn't know God, got down on her knees and got up, and she was as clean and as innocent as a newborn baby. Folks, we've got to engage people any way we can. See, On your job, you've got to be wise. But if you ever get them in your car and you're driving somewhere for lunch or coffee, you can put on whatever you want to put on in that radio. Yeah. Yeah, I'd encourage you to put on something that's going to get their attention. If they come by your house, you can put on anything you want to put on when they step into that house. Let them hear the word of God, and then that's going to spark the conversation. Some of them might even say, I didn't even know you listened to this kind of music. See? And then here, that gospel is playing, and now you have an opportunity to tell them about the king. Amen? Amen. So let's pray and ask God to give us all people to witness to. Yeah. Let's, <clears throat> let's ask God to not let us go another week 
without having somebody to engage or talk to. Another month without somebody we can share our testimony with. The more we share it, the more seed that is sown. Heavenly Father, when we think about your word, which is seed, we want to sow this in every heart. Lord, we pray that as you bring us into contact with different people, give us the courage, give us the wisdom to be able to ask the right question or make the right statement that will give us an opportunity to minister and share the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, there are broken people all over the region. They are looking for someone to give them a smile or a hug I pray that you would use each one of us to be dynamic witnesses for you. In the matchless name of the Lord Jesus, we do pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. Yeah.